Well, as we stand, let's pray together. May the mind of Christ, my Saviour, live in me from day to day. Our loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would change our minds where our thinking is wrong, warm our hearts where we're cold, and strengthen our wills that we may serve you to your praise and glory. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as you sit, do please uh, take up your Bibles and um, turn to the second of the two readings that Bernadette just read for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. You'll find it on page 1160 in the Church Bibles in front of you. It would certainly help me to know that you have it uh, open in front of you. I think it would help you as well. And uh, we begin a new series today looking at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and then uh, in a couple of weeks uh, into chapter 5 as well. So 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 6. I can uh, vividly remember the overwhelming excitement I felt the day after I became a Christian. Can you remember that? I was excited to know that I was forgiven, excited that Jesus died for me, excited to know that death was not the end, and I was unbelievably excited that I was going to spend all eternity with Jesus Christ. It was such good news that I began to tell people. No one had to tell me to do that, I just did it. But to my complete surprise, my friends and my colleagues at work didn't instantly become Christians. I was telling them this amazing news, but (laughs) they didn't want to to know. Indeed, some of my friends were angry when I told them about Jesus. Uh, Some just didn't want to know, and, and some just didn't seem to see what I was saying. At the time, I thought it was me, just not explaining it clearly enough. But they they just didn't seem to be able to grasp the point. Of course, as I've gone on in the Christian life, I've experienced the same responses again and again. Anger, indifference and baffled confusion. Even now, after years of working hard at learning to explain the good news of Jesus, people say to me, "I, I just can't see it. I don't know what you're on about. Well, the passage before us this morning begins to explain why people respond that way. I mean, there are many reasons why people don't become Christians, but why do they just not see it? Well, look at verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, of course, the Bible says so much more about why people don't become Christians. Uh, in the uh, first of our readings, the parable of the sower, there were a list of reasons why people uh, turn away from the Lord Jesus and don't accept the word. But here is one big reason. Some people just can't see it. They just can't see, verse 4, who Jesus is. Now, in view of that, wouldn't you think that Christian leaders would do all they could to make the truth about Jesus as plain as possible? You'd have thought so, wouldn't you? But not in Corinth. The church in Corinth had been invaded by false teachers who, as we read in chapter 2, verse 17, peddled the word of God for profit. Leaders that Paul exposes in chapter 11 as false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. They were very dangerous people. Their gospel was deficient. And as a result, they were manipulators and deceivers. 
For you see, there is no power in a false gospel. Oh, they'd have claimed to have the true gospel. They'd have spoken of Jesus. A lot of what they said, we would have said. But there was just a few things missing. And if you don't have the true message of Jesus, you have to rely on techniques and sham to persuade people to buy into your idea. And that's why Paul writes the way he does at the beginning of chapter 4. In these first two verses, he he is both exposing the false leaders in Corinth and defending his own ministry. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Uh, It seems Paul writes that way because the false teachers were all about secret ways and shameful ways and deceptive ways and ways of distortion. They loved secrecy because secrecy gave them power over the people they were ministering to. You see, there was no power in their message because they had lost the true message of Jesus. And so they had to turn to other things to try and gain power over people. Now the best-selling novel by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code, is to be released as a film later on this year. I think it's in May that it will be first premiered uh, in Britain. Uh, In the novel, Dan Brown attempts to undermine the Christian faith. Now, I read this book 18 months ago because I was meeting Christians who had had their faith shaken by the claims that are in here about Jesus. The heresies in this book are nothing new. If you've not read it, it is fiction, although it purports to be based around fact. Indeed, on the first page it does that. It is full of riddles, shrouded in mystery, and the plot is an attempt by some to discover a secret which supposedly has been hidden for centuries. Others in the plot are trying to keep the secret hidden. In short, it is a quest for a keystone in an attempt to break a hidden code. In the story, as one man called Aaron Garosa thinks he is about to become the holder of the all-important keystone, we read these words. If all went as planned tonight in Paris, Aaron Garosa would soon be in possession of something that would make him the most powerful man in Christendom. Now, of course, it's just a story, but here is the point for us this morning. Secrecy is a way of gaining power. The character Aaron Garosa understood that. He knew that if he held the secret, he would be in power. Secrecy is power. Just try it out with a group of friends. When they're gathered around you, lean forward and lower your voice and say, I've got a secret. Have you ever tried it? Notice how you've got everyone's attention. Everyone hanging on your every word. Secrecy is power. And that's why secret societies and religious cults and false teachers have always used secrecy to give them control over others. We know something that you don't know, but uh, come to us and we'll tell you. Gives them power because their message has no power in and of itself. 
Secrecy is a dreadful way of manipulating, of gaining control over others. And that is why Paul says in verse 2, it's, it's, it's shameful. You see, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. That's why Freemasonry is so disgraceful. But here in 2 Corinthians, this is not about some secret society outside the church. And this is not primarily about exposing Freemasonry or the Da Vinci Code or any other secular society for that matter. Now here, Paul is exposing the danger of secrecy inside the church. And that is as relevant today as it ever was. You'll find it in churches where leaders claim to have special information that others don't have. Have you come across this? Where some seem to have a special hotline to God. It is very manipulative when people start saying that God has told them things that he hasn't told anyone else. You'll see this secrecy in churches where the leader is able to dispense a special experience of God. Where the leader can create an environment where God will seem especially close to you. But only the leader can do that. Only he can give you the blessing. That is shameful. As people like that deny Christians the direct access to the Father that has been won and given to them by Jesus. And the reason they do it is it makes them very powerful. Because in order to have the blessing you have to keep going back to them, do you see? And this secrecy can be uh, created in, in Bible teaching as well. When someone perhaps claims to have a code to decipher the Bible. Or, or, or far less obvious, but equally damaging, when a Bible teacher makes the Bible say something that it doesn't actually say. Somebody said to me not so long ago, you know, you can make the Bible say whatever you like. And of course they're right. If you mishandle it, you can make the Bible say almost whatever you want it to say. When Bible teachers do that, when they get all sorts of things out of the Bible that aren't really there, like rabbits out of a hat, and you and I are looking at it and saying, well, we, I've never seen that, because it isn't there. Again, it's very powerful. It is, well, to look at the word in verse 2, it is deception. It disarms people, it leaves people uncertain. Well, I can't read the Bible for myself, because I would never have seen that in there. Which is why Paul is unequivocal at the end of verse 2. We do not distort the word of God. The authentic church leader, come to that, the authentic Christian, sets out the plain meaning of the Bible so that everyone can understand. No secrets, nothing hidden. Here it is. That's why, of course, we love it if you have the Bible open in front of you. I'm sure Mike, when he's teaching the Bible, would say the same. I'm sure Jason would say the same. I'm sure everyone on the staff here would say the same. When we're teaching the Bible, we love you to have the Bible open in front of you so that you can see whether it really is what, what we say really is what the Bible is saying. Because we can't bear the thought of leading you astray. But not the false teachers in Corinth. They did quite the opposite. Now do you see these words then in verse 2? They're very powerful. Secrecy, mystery, obscuring handling of the Bible. It's very dangerous and very manipulative. And that is what the false teachers in Corinth were doing. And that is what Paul has been exposing in chapter 3, verses 7 to 18. Well, we don't have time to go through what is a fairly detailed argument in chapter 3. 
But by contrast, Paul says, verse 2, we commend ourselves, we commend ourselves as genuine leaders as we set forth the truth plainly. We're not like these false leaders. And of course that is the job of every authentic Christian to explain plainly and clearly the good news about Jesus and to do it in a way that all can understand and to do everything we can to avoid manipulating people. As we'll see in a moment, if we know the true message of Jesus we don't need to be any, into any dubious practices and we don't need to be the spiritual equivalent of pushy double sales uh, double glazing salesmen or, or dodgy cowboy builders we should all be able to say with Paul verse 2 we have renounced secret and shameful ways we do not use deception we should say that about the whole of our lives our, our whole lives should, uh, should be very transparent but we should certainly be able to say it when we're thinking about passing on the message of Jesus so Christian whenever we put on events here for our friends to come to to hear the gospel there's to be no tricking them to get them along so that at the end of the event they say to us well you know I never knew I, I, I never knew it was about Jesus that you were going to talk about I really wish you hadn't invited me we must never do that there's no need for iffy sales techniques to get people to respond to the gospel and stage managing an evocative atmosphere at church to, to carry people along on a wave of emotional euphoria is simply not necessary. Not only is it not helpful, it's not necessary when we know that we've got the real gospel. Because as we'll see in a moment, we have a gospel of unimaginable power. And we follow a God of unbelievable strength. But having said that, let's be honest, it doesn't look like it sometimes, does it? You know, there have been loads of times, I'm sure, in your life, there's certainly been them in mine, when I've told people the gospel and it doesn't seem very powerful at all because they don't seem to respond. See, when we long for people to become followers of Jesus and to enjoy all that we know of him, it is very frustrating when they don't get it. It is exasperating that an evangelistic event can be brilliantly prepared with tons of planning and prayer, put on in a good venue, with fabulous catering, lots of guests and maybe even the best talk we've ever heard and yet no one signs up for the follow-up course. Isn't that exasperating? And then we can easily get downhearted and be tempted to begin to use deception and to distort the message to get people to follow just as these false teachers did. But look what Paul says in verse 1 we do not lose heart we do not lose heart the reason he doesn't lose heart is because as we're going to see in a moment uh, he knows that we have a God uh, who can change lives uh, a God who, whose gospel transforms people we, that's the main point but here for now we don't lose heart because well look at verse 3 even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Uh, Paul has been explaining in chapter 3 that the old covenant veils the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As a result, he makes this amazing statement that, Jew that Jewish people without Christ don't really understand their Bible. But now he says that all unbelievers, not just Jews, are veiled too. 
Indeed, he goes on to say in verse 4 that they are blinded by Satan. Verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. See, here is why men and women don't immediately become Christians when you and I tell them the wonderful good news about Jesus Christ. Oh, there are other reasons too, but here's one very big reason. Because Satan, the God of this world, has blinded their minds. It's not that they don't see how wonderful Jesus Christ is, it's that they can't see. That's the strength of it in verse 4. That's why it took me until I was 20 to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I'd been going to church for years. I'd heard all the Bible stories about Jesus walking on the water, calming the storm, feeding the 5,000, raising the dead. Who on earth did I think this person was? See, I knew all the stories, but I could not see that Jesus is God because Satan had blinded my mind. Uh, 18 months ago, surgeons treating my dad gave him the news that he would probably be blind within a year. Uh, He has an unusual form of glaucoma. Uh, But nine months ago, during uh, a routine checkup, his consultant suddenly noticed cataracts on his eyes. And while the, the, the consultant would promise nothing, he wondered if in fact it was the cataracts that were making his sight so bad. Well, of course he knew it was but they didn't know to what extent the glaucoma had actually affected his eyes as well. Well, last year he had the cataracts removed from his eyes and the difference is remarkable. He still doesn't have perfect sight because of the glaucoma, but the difference is remarkable. He can see so much more than he ever ever did and he still has his sight. Satan grows spiritual cataracts over the eyes of unbelievers. And that's one reason why when I became a Christian, my friends and my colleagues at work didn't become Christians. Because they could not see, that's verse 4, they could not see how wonderful Jesus is. And that is the work of the devil. He is preventing people from recognising who Jesus is. So when we speak to people about Jesus, who do they think he is? Well, I don't need to ask you that question. Surely you've had many conversations. Uh, When I speak to people about Jesus, they think he's just a a, a great moral teacher or a good man, a prophet maybe. But they cannot see that he is God himself. They cannot see the glory of Christ who is the image of God, as it says in verse 4. That is Satan's handiwork. What is more, do you see in verse 4, Satan uh, darkens unbelievers' minds to the thought that there may be anything else beyond this life. Look how Paul describes Satan in verse 4. He describes him as the God of this age. But of course the God of this age prevents people thinking about the next age. The God of this world distracts us from the things of the next world. Now again, you don't need me to tell you how true this is. Most people I meet have barely thought about eternity. And I didn't for years. Which is remarkable really, isn't it? It's odd. We're always told to plan for the future. Parents tell their children to work hard at school so that they'll make something of themselves. The government at the moment is telling us to save for a rainy day and to get a good pension package in in place because there may not be one. 
Everyone's telling us to plan for the future. And yet very few think of planning for the really long term. Life beyond the grave. And eternity is a very long time. We're going to be there for a very long time. Planning for our pension is actually short-term planning when you look at it in the light of eternity. But the God of this age distracts us from thinking about the things of the next age. Of course he does. And he does it in such ordinary ways. He does it by filling our minds with concerns for the here and now. The career, the house, the family, the car, the next holiday, the, well, whatever it is. People are bound up with the things of this world and distracted from ever thinking that there might be anything in the next. Most starkly I experience it when I take a funeral. As I spend time talking to the bereaved, I often find that they have never thought about death. I wonder, Mike, you probably find that as well. So a tearful widow will ask me, Vicar, there is something beyond life, isn't there? Beyond this life, isn't there? Beyond the grave? And that's not the sort of confidence that I was hearing of Mildred. Great confidence that she's with the Lord. It's not that sort of confidence. In fact, there's no confidence at all. Sort of a desperate hoping. Never thought about it before. But really, it's a bit late to be thinking about it then, isn't it? Well, it certainly is for the person in the coffin anyway. But the reason these dear people haven't thought about anything beyond this life is because, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded their minds to anything of the next age. And as a result, most people cannot see. And mostly the thing they cannot see, verse 4, is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now if you're here this morning as a guest, as someone who, who's, who's, who's not yet convinced about Christian things perhaps, well look, we're thrilled you've come along. You're, you're very, very welcome here. Indeed, we want this to be a safe place where there'll be no rushing you. We want to give you all the space you need to think through these things. But here are two things that you do well to put your mind to. To think about eternity and to think about Jesus. Who is he? And to consider how Jesus can get you to eternity. And let me say, as you think about those things, you are in a spiritual battle. Satan does not want you to see that. But we'd love to help you. We'd love to help you see how Jesus is the only way to get you to eternity. But he can do it and he wants to do it. And the good news is that although Satan doesn't want you to see, God does want you to see that. And indeed he is in the business of transforming men and women. That's why Paul didn't give up telling people about Jesus. Again, verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. What was this ministry? Well, it's back there in verse 18, the last verse of chapter 3. It is a ministry which transforms people. We don't lose heart, says Paul. Because Paul knew that God transforms people and indeed opens their eyes to the truth. And he does that as we present Jesus. So Paul says in verse 5, We do not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
See, people can't see who Jesus is because Satan has blinded their minds. So our job is to preach Jesus Christ as Lord. To explain that he is Lord of all creation. To explain that he is the Christ, God's King in God's world who came to rescue people like you and me. People like you and me who've largely ignored God all our lives. He's come to rescue us. And so we want to speak of Jesus. We certainly don't want to preach ourselves. That's what Paul says in verse 5. Which is probably what the false teachers in Corinth were doing. Boasting about all that they were. All that they could achieve. All that they knew. We certainly shouldn't be about that. No, we don't want to speak of ourselves. But I wonder actually how much of our speaking to people who are not yet convinced about Christian things is about us speaking of ourselves or our church or our religion or our activities or our groups or our courses or anything other than Jesus that's our task to speak about Jesus verse 5 we do not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and as we do that notice what happens verse 6 God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It is amazing, verse 6. This is the power that the false teachers don't have. They don't preach Jesus. They don't preach the gospel. They have no power. They have to turn to secrecy and all sorts of other things. We know the power of the gospel. As we preach Jesus Christ, God does miracles. You see, as we read verse 6, surely we're to think of Genesis chapter 1 and the creation of the world. God said, let there be light and there was light. That's the quote there, isn't it, in verse 6? At creation, God made light where there was only darkness. He created everything we see around us, the whole universe. What power! In the same way, in his new creation of Christians, God takes that same power that created the world and makes his light of truth shine into the darkness of our hearts. And verse 6, he gives us the knowledge of his glory. He makes us see how amazing he is. He reverses what Satan has done, blinding our minds. He opens our minds to the truth. Do you remember when he did that for you? I can still remember it vividly when he did it for me for the first time. It was just like pulling the bedroom curtains in the morning. Gloom gave way to dawn. Here is the power of the gospel message. The living God changing lives. Opening eyes to see the truth about Jesus. And the point in verse 6 is it takes the same power that created the universe to do that. You and I can't change people's lives, but God can. And so as you and I preach Christ, verse 5, God shines his light into the hearts of men and women, verse 6. And you see, the false teachers in Corinth had no power in their message because they had distorted the gospel message. And so they turned to secrecy. Here is the contrast, the power of the gospel message in verse 6. And that's why, verse 1, we do not lose heart. Because God does spiritual surgery, removing cataracts from eyes, shining his light into our hearts, 
so that we can see, end of verse 6, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I meet many Christians who've stopped telling others about Jesus. They know it's a good idea, they even think they should do it, but they rarely do it now. I wonder if that's you. If it is, is it because you've stopped believing verse 6? Because you've stopped believing that God still shines his light into the hearts of unbelievers today. Because you've stopped believing that he's still in the business of revealing the truth about Jesus. And you've stopped believing that he can do that to your friends and family and neighbours and colleagues who, at the moment, seem to be blind to it all. If you don't believe verse 6, then you will either stop telling people about Jesus... Or, like the false teachers in first century Corinth, you will turn to all sorts of other techniques. So we're called on to believe, verse 6, and if we do, we won't lose heart, we will proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, and then we can watch the Lord of all creation recreate men and women into the likeness of his Son. Let's pray together. Creator God, our Father, we thank you that you are the God who loves to change lives. And we pray for any here today uh, who are not yet wholehearted followers of the Lord Jesus. We pray to you for those we know, friends and colleagues and neighbours, loved ones, family, who are not yet convinced about Jesus. And we beg you, living God, as we preach Christ as Lord, that you would do this amazing thing of shining into their hearts the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, that they too may share all that we have, the knowledge of sin forgiven, the joy of a transformed life and the great experience of looking forward to spend all eternity with Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.